Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. On this podcast, we'll hear from members of the band Bonnie Vare and why their latest album sounds so different from the band's earlier records. He got a little bored with the the singer-songwritery writing on guitar, so he's just been trying to write um, using different instruments and kind of experimenting that way. We'll also have a panel discussion on why so many music venues in Seattle are at risk of closure. But first, a conversation with a member of High Women. The new supergroup just released a new album. The group is made up of Brandy Carlisle. Let Amanda Shires. Marin Morris. And Natalie Hemby. is a play off of a male country supergroup called Highway Men. It was made up of Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, and Willie Nelson. Their hit was called Highway Man. I was a highway man Along the coach roads I did ride With sword and pistol by my side And a single off High Woman's album is called High Women. I was a high woman and a mother from my youth For my children I did what I had to do Joining me now to talk about High Women and the new album is Natalie Hemby. Hello. Hello, how are you? Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for being here today. So I love this concept of this this collaborative effort, this super group, and I love this play on words and, and this single, High Women. Can you talk a little bit more about this song, High Women? I mean, it's told from a female's perspective versus a male's perspective. Can you talk a little bit more about the differences in, between this song and Highway Man? Yes. Um, you know what? Actually... This whole concept uh, was actually Amanda Shire's concept. Um, she always wanted to start a group, um, basically because of the lack of women in country music at the time. And she was on a trip and she heard the radio and on country radio, and they weren't playing any women on country radio. And she always thought it'd be amazing to start a group called the High Women. And she asked Brandy to be a part of that first. And um, basically, they took the song. And they, uh, with the permission of Jimmy Webb, who was the original songwriter of The Highwaymen, um, they took the song and they rewrote it, but more um, as, as the ghosts of women who sacrificed crossing borderlines, fighting against racism, just any, any inequality type of scenarios. But this was actually one of the first songs before I joined the band that um, they had, Brandy had sent me. Um, because I was writing songs for the band and before I actually was a part of it. So she sent me this song and I just remember I had, I just had chills. Uh, I thought it was very, very tastefully and well done. It's sort of the bedrock of, of the whole project and one of my favorite songs, honestly, on the project. So um, that's kind of how it all got started. We're the high women 
sing a story still untold We carry the sons you can only hold We are the daughters of the silent generations You send our hearts to die alone in foreign nations well, I think it's really interesting, this idea of, of listening to a radio station and saying, where where are the women singers out there? Where is the representation? And and you've spent a lot of your career writing songs for, for other big stars. You've written for Leanne Womack, Toby Keith, Sheryl Crow, Keith Urban, uh, Blake Shelton, many, many more. And so with your experience and your background, you're also a solo artist yourself. What are your thoughts on just representation within country music right now? I feel like right now um, we're trying to change the narrative, obviously. Marin said it best. She said, we don't want more. We just want the same. And there's a lot of amazing uh, female country artists out there who are making huge waves. Um, Casey Musgraves is a great example. Um, and I had three songs on her last record. And the reason why it's really hard for me is because I write with a lot of female artists. And they don't get the same treatment as some of the male artists as far as radio play and exposure. And, you know, whether it's programming, testing, I don't know what, there's all kinds of excuses as to why that is. But whenever I go and see Miranda Lambert play or Casey Musgraves or any girl in country music for that matter, it's funny because the stadiums are filled with women. And so I think what we're really trying to do is we're just trying to show people like, hey, women do support women. We buy women's records and we listen to their music. And I know for Brandy, one of her missions was to have young girls who are listening to country music today um, grow up. You know, her heroes were Tanya Tucker and they were Martina McBride and and Trisha Yearwood and people like that. And, And we want those heroes the same as today. Um, 90s country music was inundated with, with women on, on, on radio, and it's just changed over the years, and I don't really know why, but I, I know it's just something that's we're just trying to make a conscious effort, you know, just to be like, hey, we've got some great music <laughs> if you just play it, so... <laughs> Well, that's interesting um, that you had mentioned you had mentioned that you you know you write for both men and women, but it seems like you know the males are the ones that get all the hits. I mean, like when you write a song for, let's say, you know Casey Musgraves versus someone like you know Keith Urban, when you when you write for males, do you feel like those songs end up getting higher in the charts because who the front person is, or do you feel like you know you're like well, I'm, I'm it, writing? It does. Right. Yeah, it depends on it depends on the woman who is. Like Miranda, I've had a lot of success with Miranda Lambert, but, um, you know, even it took her, her third record by the time she actually got a number one on, um, on country radio and her other records had several, I mean, her second record, one album of the year, but, um, they just would not like move those songs up the charts, but she had a huge fan base and Casey has an enormous fan base. Um, I wrote Rainbow on her record and Butterflies, and we also wrote um, Velvet Elvis. Soft to the touch, feels like love. Knew it as soon as I felt it. You're my Velvet Elvis, baby. And it's interesting because there's some amazing male artists out there. It's really not about, it's more like we just don't, it's what I said. We want the same. We don't want, we're not trying to, um, say play us more basically we're more than the guys we're just 
it's just like a fair shot at something. And Casey is just a, a prime example of that because she won like overall Grammy for album of the year. And but she still can't get arrested on country radio. So <laughs> that's fascinating. Well, let's dig into some of these songs um, on the new High Women album. So I, I love the song. It's also another single called Redesigning Women. And I feel like the first line really captures it all. Old time living on a half time schedule. Always trying to make everybody feel special. Learning when to break and when to hit the pedal. Working hard to look good till we die. So I mean I, I, I love this first line where it's like, you know, we we're we're putting the work in. We're also working full time jobs. We're taking care of the house. We're making sure other people are feeling good. We're creating community. And and can you talk a little bit more about this song and, and what you're capturing here? Absolutely. Um Dave Cobb is the producer of our record and Dave um asked me, he said, I need sort of like he he's like, I really for this record, I want a song in there that encapsulates, like, and uh, captures women today, like they're sort of the funnier side of what it's like to really try to be a woman in today's society. And I just, honestly, I kind of lived this whole experience. I feel like I never catch up on anything I do. I, I work full time. I have a, I have a kid at home. My husband is amazing, and he helps me take care of stuff. But everything is, feels like a full time job. You've got friends you got to see in on. It's like I, I literally wrote this song with a really good friend of mine, uh, Rodney Clawson, who's an amazing songwriter. But um, I wrote this really out of personal experience. And I'm really no different than any mother. There's single moms out there who are taking care of their kids and working full time. But I just wanted to write a more, just a lighter side of like, hey, how do we do it? We do it halfway right and we do it halfway wrong. We don't, we do the best we can is what we do. <laughs> and so I just, I didn't want to make it too serious. And, but I also wanted to, to make a point. So, and I've had the title, I had the title. I've always wanted to write a song called redesigning women. Cause I did love the designing women show for sure. But I just thought we just live in such a different day and age. Um, even just from 10 years ago, um, just things are faster paced. We have more things to take care of. And I don't know, I've got a lot of really awesome responses from different women who's like, oh my gosh, you, I feel seen <laughs> and heard. So, <laughs> redesigning women, running the world while we're cleaning up the kitchen, making things, shaking hands, driving days. Brandy Carlisle has a song on this album called If She Ever Leaves Me, which I think is really cool because, you know, Brandy is singing about a woman with lyrics like, I loved her in secret, I loved her out loud. If she ever leaves me, it won't free won't be for you. It'll be for a woman, not for a cowboy like you. So it's like this, you know, same-sex love uh, story. Like one of my favorites. Also, you know what? Amanda wrote that with Jason and <laughs> He basically had the idea while he was working out, and he he called Amanda, and he's like, "Gay country song, gay country song." Yeah, <laughs> and he's like, "We got to get Brandy to sing it." Brandy did such a beautiful job. At I mean, uh, the the funny part about this whole song is that we all know this person who has hit on a woman at a bar, not picking up that. 
she might have a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so it just—it it really cracks me up. Is she you say is like the overall message that you're saying in this album and what do you want people to take away from this music well you know what I do to me my favorite records are records that you put in your I mean back in the day you just put the CD on in the car and or tape and you take a drive this is a highway record for sure if you're traveling down the road what I like about it is that it is definitely women's stories and songs but it's not preachy it is, uh, to me, I think Dave Cobb just did a phenomenal job. It's a, it's a timeless record. And I I do like the fact that it, it does showcase women's stories and that sort of thing. But to me, it's not like in your face about it. Um, it's, it's good. It's a good record. <laughs> it is a good record. I'm excited you guys were all able to put it together and, and make it happen. I've been speaking with Natalie Henvey of a super group called High Women. They just released a new album. It is out now. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the show today and chatting. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. This is Sound and Vision. Bonnie Vare performed at Washington's Gorge Amphitheater last week. This comes after the band's fourth album, I, I, was recently released. The album is a more experimental departure from Bonnie Vare's first albums. Those first albums had the more reverby, acoustic, woodsy feel you hear in the song Skinny Love. Respond Stacks, and Holocene. You start to hear a more experimental sound in Bonnie Vare's third album, 22 A Million. It feels more industrial in places, like in the song 10 Death Breast. Experimentation is taken to the next level in this latest album, I.I. It opens up with a recording of what seems to be a sound check, then goes into the song I Am I. Here to talk about this change in sound are two members of Bonnie Vare. We have longtime Bonnie Vare drummer and vocalist Sean Carey, as well as vocalist Jen Wassner. Hello. Hi. Hello. So the band's frontman, Justin Vernon, was not able to be a part of this conversation. But I am still curious from your point of view, what was this inspiration behind this shift in sound? Um, you know, I think Justin is just inspired um, by a lot of different kinds of music. And um, I think he, he got a little bored with the, 
the singer songwriter writing on guitar. So he's just been trying to write um, using different instruments and kind of experimenting that way. So the opening track is actually him and his best friend um, just kind of recording some stuff in the barn out at the studio. And I think a lot of those sounds are like scraping things on the concrete floor and Recording, yes. So yeah, there's sort of this element of, um, you know, improvised, experimental, free jazz sort of thing um, that starts off the record. But I think I, what I one thing I really love about the new record is just how many different places it goes musically. From that to like a song like Marion, that's just really stripped down, um, acoustic and beautiful and pastoral. And, and tons of other styles in between. When I thought that this was half full of Well, I thought that this was half full of the, This album does do a lot more. I mean, I feel like, you know, those beginning albums where it was like, you know, Justin sad in the woods after a breakup and we have for Emma forever ago, you know, and then you have something like this that 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 takes you through a much different sonic journey. Um, when I first played this album for the first time, um, I was driving in British Columbia. I was on vacation uh, surrounded by these amazing mountains and, and, and I threw on the album and my partner says, whoa, sounds like Bonnie Vera just did a lot of drugs before this album. <laughs> There's like a lot of experimentation and I read... Um, this, this article by Pitchfork recently, um, and I'm just going to quote Pitchfork here. They said, LSD and DMT are more prominent in his life now. They're talking about Justin. Drugs, um, whose therapeutic and creative properties Vernon champions. Um, he has started to ask a crowd at Bon Iver shows if anyone's on acid. One time, when no one raised their hands, he raised his own. And maybe this isn't a question for you. Maybe this isn't appropriate to ask in general, but I'm curious, like... With, with knowing that, um, you know, a little more experimentation in his own life, do you feel like that's also dripping into the album sonically? I mean, hey, Jen here. Um, and as the newest member of this band and someone who's had like a little bit of um, an outsider's perspective on the trajectory of things, um, I don't know. I feel like there's just, I've always sort of, before even I, I talked to Justin about some of this stuff, I've always sort of assumed just by listening to the records that um, there's a certain type of creative brain that is just driven by um, progression, forward motion, finding you know new so- new sounds to inspire new songs. And I have a similar need. I feel like you know when you've been writing for as long as as he has or as long as I have, you can only you have to sort of find these new new ways to get inspired. And so I would say my guess is that like that need is inspired more by um, the creative, the way that his brain works creatively than any sort of like external stimuli. Um, Not that drugs aren't um, a real way to change uh, the way your brain works in real time, but I have a feeling that a lot of these more adventurous moments would be happening whether there was uh, some sort of external drug involved or not. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
watched a video also of what you all are doing now in live shows, and it seems like you're able to take, you know, this music and, and, and create a whole new experience live on stage where maybe you're getting people in a circle and, and changing the lights and doing, you know, a, a, a set, you know, with like acoustic or acapella um, and doing new new kind of things in the performance realm. So I'm curious, like, what are some of those things you're doing on tour to kind of break up the I'm, I'm, I'm singing and I'm playing on stage, but to create a whole entire experience around the performance? Well, I mean, it's it's all about creating a mood and creating a space. I mean, I think um, what happens visually, with the, you know, with the lights and the, and the way that the stage looks is a big part of that, you know. Um, that's- yeah, we're putting a lot more importance on that. Um, <laughs> probably as equal as what's going on sonically, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, we're just like basically pushing play and then, uh, you know, uh, Michael Brown just does his light show and that's that's it. Um, no, um I think, yeah, I mean, it's about, it's about mood and it's, it's a challenge to create a space um, where people feel as though what's happening is happening right in front of them. And it's something that they're involved in. And the bigger a venue gets, the more difficult that task becomes. And so, um, you know, in addition to the six people that are on stage performing, there's just so much happening behind the scenes that is all sort of in service of creating that mood and creating that space. And, I've never really witnessed anything quite like it. Um, and I can't believe that I get to be the beneficiary of all of that work because it really does feel like you, yeah, like the work that's done to create that, that space and create that vibe and create the mood. Um, it carries over so much into the the playing that happens. What would you say are the overall themes um, in this latest album? I, I, you know, thematically, what are the stories that are being told? What's the message, you know, outside of the sonic landscape um, you think are being told in this album? The big one is um, just kind of uh, a sense of community. And um, there were, I don't even know how many different collaborators that performed and wrote on this record, um, but it is a, quite a large number. And I think Justin really wanted to get away from just having it seem like it was just him and he didn't want that pressure. And he doesn't want that sort of attention. And so we really want, wanted to showcase the, the family side of it, the community side of it. And so that, that, you can hear on the record um, with kind of the group vocals, lots of different singers, um, all the different instruments, and you can feel it in the, in the live show um, with, with that more importance on the band and on the lights and on the whole production as a whole and not just, um, you know, guy and a guitar. And so that's, that's kind of the big takeaway for me. So do you think in the future when we see more Bon Iver albums come out, they, do you think that they'll become, you know, that more that community vibe, a more experimental sound? And, you know, are the days of, of Justin Vernon in the woods of, of Wisconsin, you know, writing about heartbreak, do you think those days are, are over? I think it's all about balance, you know. I mean, there's nothing wrong with sitting down and writing a song on an acoustic guitar and, and making somebody feel something that way. But there are, there's a whole universe of, of sounds and ideas and textures to experiment with. And so if you're a creative person, I don't see how you could avoid wanting to, um, to go in those directions and see what kind of new ideas and new moods um, come out of them. You know, I mean, I think 
um, there's space for all of it. There's no reason that it has to be one or the other. Yeah. Well, Sean Carey and Jen Wozner of Bonnie Vare, thank you so much for chatting today and best of luck with the tour. And I hope you had a blast at the Gorge on Friday. Thank you so much. Thanks. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. Seattle music venues are at risk of closure. The showbox has gotten a lot of press in the last year for the risk of it being sold and turned into another residential high-rise. And there are a handful of other venues in the city that are also at risk of closure. Here to talk about this issue is Dana Sims. He owns the music venues El Corazon and Funhouse. Hello. Hello. We have Dane Wilson, who owns the venue Rebar. Hi there. And we have James Keblis, former director of Seattle's Office of Film and Music. Hello. Hello. Thanks to you all for joining us today. And I reached out to a, a, quite a few venues uh, in the city, you know, outside of El Corazon, Funhouse, and Rebar. And it seems like there are a lot of venues at risk of closure in Seattle. Um, the Belltown Jazz venue Tula's is closing later this month because the block it's on is slated to become a high-rise apartments, plus there's other large expenses they were dealing with. Um, the Highway 99 Blues Club closed down last year because their rent was slated to go up by $10,000 a month. Um, and there's also venues such as the Triple Door and Neighbors where the building is for sale, but there haven't been any interested buyers. Triple Door, for example, the building's for sale, but it hasn't been on the market yet. Um, and after talking to various venues throughout town, it seems like one of the biggest issues is that if you don't own your building, every time you renew a lease, there's there's a risk that your venue could, you know, the owner could say, I want to turn this space into apartment buildings or sell it to a developer or, you know, your rent skyrockets, you know, during your your next lease. And, and Dana, I understand, you know, in your situation, you don't necess- you don't own Rebar or the building. Correct. We own the business, but you, Diamond owns our building. Right. And so, and so you're in this area where you might be at risk of closure. Correct. So Diamond just let us know recently that the building the Rebar is in is up for sale for $6.4 million and that they're looking to develop. And, and what is, and does that mean like, so who else is in your building? Who else would be at risk? We have a teriyaki restaurant, and we have Seattle's probably one of the oldest sandwich shops. Uh, it's called the Meat Market Building, in fact, and it's been there since 1948. Uh, the rebar has been there since 1990. And what's the timeline here? Like, how soon could this happen? How likely is this to happen? We've been told that we have about a minimum of two years before they would start bringing the bulldozers. And do you have backup plans or? So we have a couple of different options that we'd like to reach out to the community and we can basically move, we can stay or we can go away. And so we're either going to ask people if they would like to help us relocate and keep our current programming and have the rebar maybe on the south side of Seattle. Or we could try to become part of the development that's going to go there by having some sort of equity in the building or we could just decide to permanently close. But Dana, you actually own your own building that El Corazon and Funhouse is in, and you're actually going to be working with a developer to redevelop the space that you're currently in. So the entire building will be redeveloped into a skyscraper, but your venue at the end of the day will still be there. And it's pretty rare in Seattle for a venue owner to also own the building they're in. Can you talk about the advantage of that? Like once you're able to afford the upfront cost of a building, 
What kind of benefit is that for you? Uh, it's extreme benefit. It gives you a chance to hold the cards and, and, and for the most part, dictate your future. Frankly, the way the dynamics are in the main part of the city, if you don't own your property, you're really, uh, I mean, the rug could be pulled out at any moment. Um, there's conversations that you may not even be privy to that are going on because any block in downtown Seattle that is under six stories tall is is marked for redevelopment, whether people realize it or not. That's just how it's going, and that's the way that our public officials and city council have allowed it to go. And as I looked around and I started seeing venues that were half my size paying double what I was paying in rent, I'm like uh, – you know, if all of a sudden I was stuck with market rent for the size of the space that I had, I, I would be out of business. We were stuck with market rent <laughs> for the size of the space that we have. Ugh. And we experienced the rebar doubling in rent over yeah. the past couple of years. And so I, I looked at it as like, I have to control my cost. Any business owner will tell you, regardless of what type of business it is, the, the, the key to success is controlling your costs. And when you have huge variables that can double or triple on you when you are in control of your costs, that's a huge curveball. That's why people are looking around like, why are all these restaurants I go to that are packed closing? It's because their costs are getting doubled and tripled. So because it's an old building, because there's uh, not a lot of uh, debt on the building, a lot of other things, it, once I got acquired, I mean, my, my costs are completely under control. The only variable which actually affects market rent is, is property tax. And I understood that that doubled on you. One well, yeah. Year. So the, the year after I bought the building – the property tax for the year was $23,000. The next year, the property tax was $49,000. 116% increase in one year. I wrote, I'm like, how, how can you do this? And it's just like, well, you know, your zoning changed. There can be a 44-story skyscraper on your building. I'm like, but there's not a 44-story skyscraper right. on my building. How, how can a two-story building support the taxes for a fictitious the same thing building. happened to ours, and that's why this year was the first year that our operating costs started exceeding what we had coming in. Yeah. Because we were told we were a 40-story building, but we we're a one-story building. Hmm. When you see all these successful businesses having trouble, for, first off, landlords have figured out this city. So any business in downtown Seattle is on a triple net lease. And what that means is you pay your rent, you pay your percentage of the uh, rent of the building in insurance and in property taxes. So any elected official that tells you that they support small business and keeps throwing everything towards property tax is completely lying through their teeth to you because all that's doing is getting passed through to every small business owner in the city. And, you know, so if if I didn't own my building and I was just renting and I was renting at market rent and those taxes went from 23 to 49 and I own half – I'm in half the building because the ground floor is the club, I would have been responsible for – Twenty-four and a half thousand dollars in taxes, not the not the landowner. So all of a sudden, I would have all my costs under control, and then all of a sudden, on February fifteenth of the next year, it's like congratulations, your expenses just went up by, you know, almost thirty thousand dollars. Well, for example, our rent at the rebar is thirty-five hundred dollars a month, and the check that I sign every month is ten thousand dollars a month. Mm. So, James Keblis, you recently did a TED Talk about the history of, of, of the music scene in Seattle, um, and you talked about venues as being a part of that. I mean, you've also talked about the Teen Dance Ordinance, things like that. Um, and in your TED Talk, you had a slide showing nine venues either at risk or were about to close or already closed. And I'm gonna just going to give a list of what those venues were. So Showbox Market, which we hear a lot about, um, Lo-Fi, Chop Suey, 
Tula's, which is closing later this month. Rebar. Uh, we have someone from Rebar in the room. Numos, Highway 99, Highway 99 already closed. Crocodile and Showbox showed Soto. So what's the current state of venues like, say, Lo-Fi, Chop Suey, Numos, and Showbox Soto? Well, I think they're all under a threat. I mean, the analogy that I give is the, you know, the movie Up, right, where you have this house surrounded by skyscrapers and development. Seattle's under enormous pressure. At one time, there was one time recently, there was over 1,100 people a week moving here. Fastest growing city, 10 years in a row, more sky, uh, you know, uh, cranes for development in our skyline than New York, Chicago, and San Francisco combined. That's pressure. And that's what all the venues are feeling right now. And I mean, I had rebar on that list before I knew mm-hmm. what we've discovered in this conversation that it's actually happening. And so- about a third of those venues are scheduled to be developed. Um, another third um, have been developed. And then the other third, you, you know, the Crocodile isn't and, uh, and Numos is not currently under development. And they're owned by people who really care about uh, the music scene and the culture here. But pressures are pressure. And um, sometimes you can get pushed out because of cost that we're talking about now or other reasons. And, and so you can only imagine that they're going to be going away if they're not already, and two-thirds of them are. So the, the president shows it's going to happen. And so we just have to decide as a community, you know, we, do we want to have a thriving music scene? Um, I, I think we do, and many, many cases show that it's good culturally, it's good economically, um, but you have to do things to make that happen. And, uh, and otherwise, we are just choosing to let it go. And while there are many, many things that make for a really compelling music community and a music scene and a music identity, my belief and my work over the years have shown nothing is more important than having live music venues. It's the number one ingredient you can have for having everything else fall into place. Um, so when you let that go... What, is, what do you mean by that? Like, Can you give an example of yeah, that? Yeah, so live music venues are the place where musicians hone their craft. It's the place where they develop their sound and their voice and their identity. It's where they meet other musicians and you form collaboration and you start doing things together. Grunge is a great example of all of that. It's also the place where um, audience gets developed. It's where music appreciation happens. And all of those things, you need venues. You need all different kinds of venues for that. You need big venues, small venues. You need real formal venues. And the street, the busker scene is a legit venue. And you need as much as possible for there to be a healthy musical scene community industry identity in your community. And so what we're choosing right now in Seattle is to let that go uh, because we're not stepping in to combat the pressures that the music venues are facing. And, uh, and there's many things we could do, but we're just choosing not to do that. Seattle could do some construction mitigation for businesses. Uh, we were a dead-end sidewalk for two and a half years, and that probably took away about 50% of our business. So we could have agent of change laws that uh, help you interact with those new neighbors who are coming there who might have a noise complaint because people are talking outside of your venue on a sidewalk. Yeah. Our historical landmark laws could also have something to do with the usage of the building rather than just the physical parts of the building. And this isn't new ideas. I mean, these are all – these are either ideas that we've done in Seattle in the past. So, for instance – the Paramount and the Moore Theater, these are all venues that were threatened. And the community came in and saved them. If you take a... a and, and what did that look like? What did it take for them to save it? It, it, took, um, it took a fight. It took a challenge. It took, you have to make the case. You have to show the value. And then the money comes in to, say it, to save it, along with the political will to stand up to the competitive pressure of capitalism. 
So all of those things combined either establishes that you do save it or you don't. And we've also lost many venues. So, you know, in the other example you can do it at is take a Pioneer Square or Ballard, for instance, right? Those actually have a fair amount of uh, venue space left in them. But the reason they do is because they were earmarked as historic neighborhoods. They can't be developed in the way that the marketplace would like them to be developed. So you retain something there in that way. So we have to think about those options and, and the venues that we're talking about here and, and the list that you gave and beyond. And then across the world, many places are dealing with this. And they've come up with all kinds of innovative ideas, either to get um, business owners like Dana to be able to own their business or stuff that Dana's talking about that makes it easier to run your business. And we've done this in Seattle, too. We did it in the last kind of economic boom when we were losing the crocodile and stuff. We came up with an incentive package that saves venues. I, I mean, you probably take advantage of it. You know, it's the admissions tax waiver. You save 5% on every dollar. It saves venues tens of thousands of dollars every year. And it was a it stopped the hemorrhaging of music, music venues at the time. We got 12 new ones as a result. So there you go. I mean, we can do things right now, today, to, make, to, to stop the change and turn it around. I'm speaking with James Keblis, former director of Seattle's Office of Film and Music. We also have Dane Wilson, owner of Rebar, and Dana Sims, owner of the music venues El Corazon and Funhouse. So I want to play some clips from other um, folks associated with other smaller venues in town and just kind of get your reaction to what they have to say. Um, So we reached out to uh, The Crocodile, and I spoke with Adam Wakeling. He's the general partner of The Crocodile and Belltown. Um, And and I thought this was kind of interesting, uh, interesting comment. So I'm going to play this and and have you all react to it. It's challenging. It is challenging. It's always been challenging. Uh, It's more challenging now. Part of it is just the music business itself, the expectations from artists. This is how they make their revenue now is by touring. So. It costs more money to get artists, and when you're in a competitive city, it even costs even more money because uh, the agents love that more than one place wants their their artists. So you're paying you're paying you know premium prices here in Seattle for the bands. So that was that was um, the crocodile saying you know bands because I think in this digital age you know touring is where you get your money as an artist um are you also seeing within your venues that that prices are going up just to book artists and that's becoming more expensive definitely our our artists have gone up in price and the agents are very much aware of we play a lot of underground electronic music and maybe 5 years ago there were about 3 venues now there are about 7 venues playing that and I'll definitely see a bidding war go on or somebody will have right of refusal over an artist and will ask for more money and I'll come back and offer them more and then they'll say okay we'll play for you instead or we'll see an artist that we were about to book and then something happened and then i see them playing the next month at the monkey loft or at creme work yeah what about you dana are you seeing competition with you know kind of bidding wars over bands touring and things like that absolutely i mean the thing you have to remember is seattle is the 18th biggest city in the united states it has seven venues in the top hundred of ticket sales worldwide every year. What are those venues? Showbox, Showbox Soto, Neptune, Crocodile, El Corazon, Triple Door. Wow. And Numos. So the argument right there that this is a culturally rich city that supports live music is there. Um, it just it's feeling more and more that not all stakeholders are supporting live music. 
Yeah. So I want to play one more clip before we move on with our conversation. Um, I also spoke with uh, Scott Gempino. He books shows at the Triple Door, in which I mentioned Triple Door. Um, the building is for sale, but it's not quite on the market yet, so they could be at risk um, in a few years. Um, and he says not only do the costs of leases go up because they don't own the building, um, you know, every time you have a lease, you know, the cost could go up. But he says just the cost in general, let's say our $15 an hour minimum wage, you know, or minimum wage increase uh, has also gone up too. So here's what um, Scott had to say. It's a challenge and it's more of a challenge than it was, say, 10 to 15 years ago. Um, and, th- and there's other factors involved too, you know, the um, labor increase per hour, you know, that has to get passed down to the customer. So everything goes up, everything goes up. The product of Coca-Cola, the product of, you know, flatware, the product of, you uh, post labor, um, cleaning, everything goes up. So you have to charge more. So any comments out of, out of what Scott had to say? We haven't seen too much. Uh, we were right on the front line of the $15 an hour. We actually increased our employees before they did that to try to be an example of a small business doing that. Uh, we haven't seen too much of an increase over that. We haven't tried to pass that on to our guests. Yeah, I'm pretty similar. I try to keep it reasonable because I want people to come out and enjoy live music. I don't want to put up a bunch of barriers. I make sure that my costs are profitable but not out of control. And sometimes I have sticker shock. I'll go to some of the corporate-owned venues in town and, you know, I'll order two well drinks for me and my lady. And and then on my jaw, I'll have to pick my jaw up off the floor because I'll be like – I could drink for a whole night at my club for the same price I'm paying for these two drinks. <laughs> I agree so. with that. There, there's a certain expectation over the type of people that come to see our shows. You know, we're presenting underground music and all fringe theater. So what does it take to stay afloat financially right now as a venue in Seattle after we saw this just exponential increase? I think part of it is having alternative uses. We definitely have a side hustle that we do. We have a full stage. We're a seated theater, and so we provide uh, rental space for private parties during the daytime, uh, rehearsal space, film shoot space. So we just try to be occupied seven days a week all the time, whether we're open for a show or whether we're providing a space for your film shoot. Yeah, fl- flexibility is key. I mean, I have a large venue and a small venue, and they can commingle. Um, I can scale down my large venue. I mean, I'm not static. So if there's a show that sort of sits between the large venue and the small venue, I can scale to make it work. I think government has a role in this too. And when there's a recession, it's all hands on deck, right? When people are losing their jobs, when houses are going under, when businesses are going under, government really steps in locally all the way to the federal government and says, we've got to stop this. And, and, and then there's policies put forward right away to combat that, which is great. I think we should do that. We need to see this as a recession. And I think I've kind of looked at it as a cultural recession, which oftentimes happens in Seattle when we have these big economic booms. But we should look at it, okay, we see a cultural recession by the pure data of People moving, you know, production companies and other kinds of creative businesses closing up and the pressure for development and all these things. So you look at it from a data point of view and say, this is a recession. It's been going on for a long time. So let's do what we can to stop the recession and, and balance that with the economic boom that we're in. And government completely has the ability to do that. There's so many easy steps that could be taken 
tomorrow that can make that happen. We just have to choose that kind of city we want to live in. And that's the government stepping in saying we'll provide incentives or this or that? Exactly. Incentives are a great way to do it. And it can range from both the supply side and the demand side, like we're saying with the developers, getting them to bring in like more models that Dana is going through with El Corazon, that they can be owners inside of their development. I, don't, I haven't heard anyone say they're against change. They know everyone recognizes the world's going to change. Seattle is not going to stay the same, and it shouldn't. I'm excited about it becoming a kind of a city with more going on. Um, let's make sure that we don't lose the stuff that made it special to begin with in the process of change. And also recognize that the economic boom that we're all enjoying right now isn't going to last forever. So what are we going to be when that money runs dry a little bit and, and our identity based on that? So have a long-term view on this and let's plan accordingly. And it's, and it's not expensive and it's not difficult. And James Keblas, during your TED Talk, you also at the end gave advice of like, if, if this is something that worries you, if, if we're starting to lose venues in Seattle and lose a sense of our music scene, there are things that you can do. Yeah. What were some of those things? Well, I think in the TED Talk, I talked about five things. I don't know if I can remember them all, but a few of them are, you know, like, don't let elected officials get elected into office without talking about not only what they're going to do for music in Seattle, uh, but what they're going to do to grow music. So there has to be a conversation, and, uh, and it works. We've done that in the city before, and I think we need to bring that back to the table a little bit. We need to think of uh, music as a community development and urban planning tool. So as we're doing anything in our city, how is music helping it? How is music involved in it? So for instance, uh, the waterfront is one of the biggest urban redevelopment projects in generations in this town. How is music incorporated into that from the big venues like Concert Summer Nights at the Pier uh, to the street busking programs, right? And everything in between to um, – I talk about music education. You know, there's a reason why uh, every private school in America has a robust music program because it makes great people. And they know that because they can afford and they can afford to do it. It's a crime that we don't have that for our public schools in Seattle. And I was so, shocked to learn that, that yeah. that was just not an option. Yeah, it's, and, and more schools don't have it than do. And um, so that needs to be fixed. Um, and then uh, I'm trying to think I have them all. But I, uh, the, the last one and the one that I really wanted the audience to really act on was to go see live music. The act of going to see live music probably has the biggest impact for the least amount of work and you'll have fun through the process of it. And I, for that TED talk, I just happened to look at a local music calendar and there was like 122 different performers playing that night. I mean, there's so much going on. You get out and explore it and help make sure that these businesses are thriving. So it was a very easy step that any one individual could start acting on today. And uh, in addition to all the other things too. So if, if we do start to see, you know, this risk where we're seeing lots of music venues kind of teetering on the edge, like every time the lease comes up, we're worried, are we going to make it? Is the developer going to take us over? Um, if we start to lose more venues like we saw, you know, Highway 99, we saw, are seeing Tula's coming up, um, you know, Showbox at the market is, is kind of teetering and has been for about a year. Um, you know, we, we've talked about Rebar. Um, when we start losing venues, how do you think that impacts a city? What do we lose when we lose I venues? Think, well, it's already – what you lose – one of the things that James talked about earlier is about how the music community develop, you know, thrives by having multiple music venues and for development. We're talking about some of the more established larger venues or established small businesses, but they're still capacity-wise decent-sized venues. 
I mean, most of the dive bars and the rooms where artists develop their craft, they're already gone. And there's so many barriers to entry, you're not going to see a lot of them pop up. And the the problem we're having is artistically, it, it sucks the soul out of the city when you don't have options for people to develop and hone their craft. Because you can sit in a rehearsal room or a garage and play till the cows come home. But like you said, getting out there and being part of the community and growing and making connections and meeting fellow musicians is all an important part of the process. And we're getting to the point now where if you're a new artist, there's only really one or two really small places to play in the downtown area. And, you know, you're not developed enough to play a 400, 600, 800 capacity room. You have you have no, you know, because you have to remember this is a business too. You have no economic impact on something that size. You need to you need to start small and work your way towards that. And so what you're seeing now is all the places where artists can develop, they're on the periphery of the city or they're flat out out of the city. And the same thing is happening for the artists. They all used to live in when I first moved here in Belltown or Capitol Hill and all these places are getting priced out. So most people that are actually trying to be artists, you see them popping up in Federal Way, Tacoma, uh Linwood, uh, and so, uh, the music's not, ha- the, the development's not happening in the city. So there's like this disconnect. And and I think culturally it's going to rear its head more and more where you're going to have, we're going to continue to get all these big tours, but as far as like organically growing our own music community, the, the music community is getting pushed out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, um, I'm a fan of all creative endeavors and, and arts, but music is special, I believe, because I, I used to throw shows all the time and I'd always be, um, I'd, I'd always be struck by how different kinds of people can like the same song. You get rich kids, poor kids, black kids, white kids, gay kids, straight kids. And they, they all, there are a lot of differences going on there, but they could agree they like that song. And it's a platform that enables us to get along in a really interesting way. It's relatively accessible. There was a recent study the city put out that talked about diversity and the art forms and music was the most diverse art form in the city. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there are a lot of things that make uh, music really a good thing and that people are expressing themselves anyway. And I think that's really important to that culture that we want to be. And then economically, you know, in that TED talk that I did, I talk about the Wall Street Journal and their study, which... Um, I mean, we could talk all day long. We're in the music, so we love music. Of course, we're going to say more music. But even if you don't have any skin in the game, you don't really care, it's good for you too because when the Wall Street Journal did their study about where educated young people moved to out of college, Seattle was number one on that list. And when they asked them why Seattle, the music scene was one of the top reasons people moved here. These are the employees of these corporations that we have in town now. So if you don't even care about music, and when was it's that good study? for business. That was a study done in 2009. Yeah. Uh, arguably, it was too successful because we brought too many <laughs> yeah. people here and, and we're in the situation that we're in. But, I mean, you know, we get oftentimes people come here for our good looks, right? We get by on our good looks, pretty mountains, clean water, clean air. And then oftentimes, very often, and even when it's a study, music is a thing that draws people here. So it's good for a lot of reasons. And we're also, you kind of bet on things when you're doing community and economic development, you bet on things that you already are good at, right? That's the horse to go with. 
we're good at music. We've been historically good at music. We produce great musicians. We're a community that supports one another. That's a thing to bet on. And so that's that, these are all reasons why music in particular is a good one. Well, thank you so much to our panel this week. Uh, in the room, we had uh, James Kevles, former director of Seattle Office of Film and Music. We had Dana Sims, owner of the music venues El Corazon and Funhouse, and Dane Wilson, who owns the venue Rebar. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Sound and Vision. KEXP is gearing up to have our fall fun drive, and during the fun drive, we are going to air the best albums of all time as voted on by you, by listeners. So this week, we ask listeners what their most meaningful album was and why. Here were their responses. My name's Neil. I live in Kansas City, and Bon Iver's 22 A Million has become one of the most meaningful albums of all time for me. It uh, came out right after I turned 22 years old and started my final year of college. And I wasn't sure how I liked it at first, since it was kind of a stark departure from Bon Iver's previous sounds. But as time went on, it grew on me in what seemed like a large divide between Bon Iver and 22 Million. Uh, I began to see as a natural progression of Justin's talent. And uh, when I was 22 years old, I just kind of really fell in love with the album and that same year, I finished my bachelor's degree. I backpacked around the world solo for about two months. And when I got home, I moved to a new city and started my first job out of school. Um, and then actually just this summer, at 24 years old, I ended up getting the 22 symbol from that album as my first ever tattoo. Staying at the Ace Hotel, My name is Liz Piglowski, and I live in Port Townsend, Washington. And uh, the most meaningful album to me would have to be 10,000 Maniacs, The Wishing Chair. I grew up in western New York in the 1980s, and of course that was sort of the nebula of where the 10,000 Maniacs came from. I grew up in a neighboring town from there. And so a lot of what they wrote about and sang about was local history and um, local locations and, you know, places that we could see, feel, hear, touch. So it's just such a strong connection to our formative years that this particular album sits at the center of um, my closest friends that I grew up with and always will be there. A great song, one of my very favorites off the album, is Maddox Table. And it talks about the Maddox Table Company in Jamestown, New York, where they were creating um, furniture and um, how immigrants were there. They were making this furniture and how they became unionized. And, you know, it's not a very romantic song, but at the very same time, it's a very meaningful song for an event that happened in the local area where we grew up. It's just a really great tune. My name is Deadly Vetter, and the most significant album in my life has been Pearl Jam's 10. A friend gave it to me in 1991, and before I heard their music, or what I would call their sound, that was the first time I ever felt joy in my life. I grew up in a really 
abusive house full of domestic violence. And the only thing I ever felt was terror and hopelessness. And the way that album starts, just hard hitting and so emotional, but happy. I just, I started jumping up and down and as soon as I heard it and I've never stopped. I actually moved to Seattle in 2011 for the sole reason that I loved Pearl Jam so much. And I have congratulated myself for that decision every day that I've been here. I got to go to the home shows last year and standing in front of that stage when they played lots of music that I love, but particularly music from 10 was the happiest night of my entire life. And I would say my favorite song on that album is the first one, Once. It just starts off with a sound that's like a bunch of wasps buzzing, and it just gets better from there. Thanks to everyone for sharing their responses to their most meaningful album. And by the way, you can also vote on your favorite album of all time at the homepage of KEXP.org. KEXP will be playing the albums with the most listener votes during our upcoming fun drive, which reminds me to remind you that the majority of the money that funds KEXP comes from listeners. It comes from people just like you. You power KEXP. And I hope you can also take a minute to help power this podcast. Please give a one-time $20 donation at kexp.org slash sound. It would also be extremely helpful if you subscribed, rated, and reviewed this podcast. It helps other people know that this podcast exists. Well, we've come to the end of this week's show, and to wrap it all up, I asked Natalie Hemby of High Women why music matters. Well, music matters because it's sort of... um spiritual thread to a lot of people's soul. Um, it's something that uh, it's so influential in our daily lives that we don't even recognize it. It changes our mood. It changes our minds. It changes our hearts. And to me, I can't imagine, and I've actually written a song with a friend of mine. Um, her name is Liz Rose. Um, and my friend Nicole Gallion, we wrote a song called If There Was No Music, and I can't imagine a world without music because it is, it's very healing, but it also can, um, it conveys our feelings if, if we're feeling angry, if we're feeling hurt, it's expression. It's so important because it, it's part of our soul, and our soul is something that we don't always get to tap into in our busy daily lives, and so... To me, music matters because it's like the thread that kind of keeps us sane. That was Sound and Vision. Thanks for listening.